0: Alex and I'm a final year medical student at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the Freudian Slit podcast. This is our second episode and today I'm very kindly uh, joined with Dr. Andrew Court. He is a consultant liaison psychiatrist at the Royal Children's Hospital and he's also previously worked and trained as a pediatrician. He practices as a psychiatrist privately in Melbourne Some of his areas of uh, clinical focus include eating disorders, somatoform disorders, and particularly within the adolescent population. G'day, Andrew. How are you doing today?
1: G'day, Alex. Pleasure to be here.
0: Likewise, we're very happy to have you today. And uh, to lead on from our last episode, we'll actually be talking through um, some of the more obscure and tricky parts of uh, the mental health curriculum for medical students, at least for me in particular, Uh, When talking about the somatoform disorders, I I found it was easy maybe to get lost in a bit of the nomenclature and not know exactly where I was. Um, what, What do you make of that? Do you think that that's common?
1: I certainly do, and I guess um, I might just elaborate on, on, on terminology and what I think the problems, what I personally see the problems as. Mm. Um, so my own view, well, first of all, if I could just share with you my, I mean, I say my view because everyone has different views on what they mean by somatizing and also in terms of their terminology. My own view, and I'll explain why that is as well in a minute, but my own view is that somatizing. Uh, when we're talking about somatizing, we're talking about physical symptoms, which have as their underlying driver, some kind of underlying psychological distress or difficulty, um, which is causing a true physical symptom. And the reason I think that there's a lot of uh, problem with terminology is associated with the, the whole idea of seeing the, the stigma associated with a psychological Um, background and causation of some description, which I think is difficult as a stigma and a a descriptor, both for doctors, pediatricians, GPs, anyone, as well as patients. And my own view as a psychiatrist who was once a pediatrician is that we, rather than changing the terminology, we should be taking away the stigma associated with these presentations. And Mm. so, I prefer the term somatizing of one way or another as a descriptor of, what, of this idea of being clear about what drives the physical symptoms, while my perception is that there's an ongoing concern with that Stigma associated with that term, and they're much more a, a, a drive towards a description of symptoms rather than a background understanding of the etiology as a psychological background. So, in other words, there's a whole lot of other terminologies, which in my mind still are describing somatizing presentations, but which are avoiding that term, or even if using that term, are changing the idea of it being an underlying cause for it being a description of someone. Mm-hmm. And so, the, so, the, so we're talking about in, in terms of the, the new terminology of understanding somatizing as a descriptor in DSM-5, it's a somatic symptom and related disorder description. And we're talking about someone who, who is actually caught up with their symptom without in any way talking about the underlying cause necessarily. And other, other terminologies which are used include things like medically unexplained symptoms, functional conditions, including functional neurological disorder and other con- similarly related conditions.
0: How do you feel about those terms? Would you use them openly? or?
1: All of these terms are very reasonable. And, and i the problem is that they they they, they all become into one big uh, descriptive box and it's unclear to know what people are talking about so i i use these terms as all different terms that people use and, and explain why they're different and for example if we talk about functional neurological disorder um as, a, as, a, as an example as i my, my take on it is if you go and see a neurologist or a doctor, you'll you'll get a diagnosis of functional neurological disorder. If you go and see me or a psychiatrist, you may get a diagnosis of conversion disorder.
0: (laughs) When in reality, you're talking about the same thing at the end of the day. It's just the doctor that diagnosed it.
1: Correct. Well, it's talking about the same thing. The thing that we disagree about um, is is what's causing it. Mm. Um, And and because a a neurologist will see it as a descriptor and does not want us to talk about the causation, and the same with all these other conditions we're talking about, doctors really struggle, I think, in my experience anyway, to, 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 to worry about telling a patient or parents that the underlying cause is somehow psychologically related and much prefer a descriptive term.
0: Mm-hmm. My big takeaway from what you've just said, and that was very well put. Uh, by you would be that really we need to focus a bit more on the etiology, the underlying. Not get too drowned out with the soup of so many different labels, but fundamentally see what's what's the driving force behind this. Is that accurate? It, it,
1: well, yes. T- two things I think are important. Mm. One is um, is to be clear that there's not an underlying medical cause. That needs to be uh, addressed and treated because I think you know, part of the whole in terms of defining somatizing, and I was you know, mentioning that I, as I see it, we're talking about a physical symptoms driven by an underlying psychological cause. But the other part of somatizing is that patients who somatize are actually looking for a medical cause. In other words, they are are not able to accept a psychological cause, they're looking for a medical cause and are driven by that. And so one of the benefits of giving it a term other than a medical diagnosis, I mean, whatever, whether you call it functional or functional neurological disorder or or somatizing or whatever, is to be clear that there's not an underlying medical cause. Mm -hmm. So we can agree on that myself and physicians, I think, can agree about that. The second is 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 trying to understand what's driving it. And yes, and I agree with you, that second part is is important, I think, from a psychological point of view, perhaps less important for doctors, medical doctors.
0: So you've just made a big point there, Andrew, that I can recall you making before in the past, which is about how we treat this group of disorders or syndromes, and that's in reference to whether or not the diagnoses of exclusion, and whether or not it's valuable to con- continue sort of performing investigations and such. Uh, I'm just wondering, how, how have your thoughts uh, progressed to that nowadays? Where does, the, um, where does the role of the doctor come in when it comes to ordering necessary versus unnecessary investigations? Should we always be thinking of these somatoform or somatization disorders from the beginning?
1: Absolutely, though, you know, to be honest with you, my perception is that it's very common um, that patients who present with these conditions are recognised early on by doctors, medical doctors, as being different to other medical presentations, and it is, I think, often on the list of differentials at the beginning but their problem being that it continues to be such a problem of addressing it head on because of the stigma. So therefore, doctors often feel the need to go along with, a, with the push from both patient and parent to think of medical causes and to exclude them. At the, and so, I would I would sort of put things differently. At least I'd sort of set the framework of one. I think it is extremely important of anyone who is presenting with with a medical condition that doesn't fit a medical a a typical medical presentation or whether there are warning signs that this might be a non-medical um somatic presentation to think early on sure so that
0: might be a group of symptoms that you don't typically see in tandem with each other
1: that's that's an interesting question i think there's a there's a range of there's a if you speak to your experienced medical doctors they will they will let you know that there's a there's a there's a number of warning signs. The, the classic one, of course, is going to be that you're not following through the normal um, recognized medical syndromes. Um, mm. that's, that's clear. Uh, it's something, but it, but at the same time, there are other things as well. For example, patients seem to often present with um, symptoms which are out of keeping with the symptom with the with the described symptom. In other words, they seem to be more exaggerated in their symptom presentation. They often describe uh, nothing working, and and that the, 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 the seeming to be much more pronounced symptoms than other patients presenting with a similar kind of presentation. They often, for ex- interestingly, go out of their way to say that there's no psychological issues in the background. I mean, more than you'd expect,
0: without prompting, you mean, or
1: right, well, quite that I mean, they not necessarily say there aren't no any psychological issues, but if you ask about them, they will. Be, it, often Denier, they yeah. deny that there's anything everything's fine at mm. school and friends and everything number one is a sort of how they first present as being in terms of the symptoms and the symptoms themselves fitting a pattern the next is that they quite often seem to be more exaggerated than expected and may change mm. with who's watching and listening and then the third is a whole range of other kind of potential giveaway signs including minimizing and denying any psychological distress that's so- a really
0: good uh, sorry to interrupt you that's a really good sort of summary of some things that I suppose, junior doctors or medical students should sort of be on the lookout for and always be considering when you have these presentations that don't quite make sense. Because I think a lot of the time we're a little bit stumbled and we can't figure out where our symptoms coming from exactly. And maybe this is part of where that answer lies.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Alex. And I I think... um... I I would suggest there's two things which can make it hard for a junior doctor and even more experienced doctors. One is sort of trying to make sense of symptoms in front of you when they don't fit and thinking that this might be an issue. Mm. But I think also the other thing is that I think, and I'm going to keep on coming back to this, I I do think there is a, a, a very pronounced concern about putting psychological issues on patients. In other words, you know, misreading physical symptoms as as, as somehow being seen as being psychologically based and, and patients push back so much and parents do because they perceive what you're saying is they're not taking the symptoms seriously. So there's a push if you, and they get upset and angry and mm. push back. So I think that that also makes it hard for young doctors to to sort of be thinking about it because you're not being encouraged to think about it by the patient or the parents.
0: Mm, i i completely see where that apprehension is coming from but as you're alluding to it's almost part of the stigma that gets in the way too correct Uh, correct. i i notice in the past you've made comments that pediatricians are particularly skilled at picking up at these sort of warning signs or you know uh, red flags that we've noticed why do you think it's pediatricians in particular that are trained at that
1: Oh, I I don't necessarily other than through experience. And by the mm. way, can I thought sort of, my own my own perception of paediatricians is not all paediatricians. <laughs> <way>. There's always <laughs> an
0: yeah yeah. There's a that's a very important caveat.
1: <laughs> um, and I I tend to work with adolescent physicians, by the way. And I have to say, I think the adolescent adolescent physicians, I think, are are very good at it. Mm. Um, but but I think that um, that, that what we are my, my guess by the way is i i, I do a, I, I don't work with gps uh often but when i do my perception is a good experienced gp is just as good as a pediatrician in this and it, it's it's really about a, of um of experience and being able to differ you know and, and to recognize patterns uh, and so whether so there's the pattern of physical of medical physical presentations but there's also the pattern of Non medical, yes. so <laughs> non presentation, so that you know t- you need to be good at that pattern recognition as well,
0: of course. Well, in a related note, then, Andrew, could you maybe please walk us through a bit of your psychological model of differentiating these uh, medically unspecified symptoms and maybe teasing them out a bit in terms of, say, the uh, dissociative versus physiological and, and such?
1: Sure, well, the, the way. The way I see somatizing presentations is actually, rather than sort of just seeing it from a psychological point of view, the way I really see it is a true, and perhaps everything is, but I certainly see it as a true biopsychosocial pathway to. Excellent. Cinema. Yeah. And so, and I'm my, my sense is it's important not only in talking to medical students or doctors, but also patients and parents, and particularly parents, um, to, to to sort of sell this model because. Mm. So, that, that, because I, I do think, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make this point again, I, I don't have any doubt that somatizing um, consists of how people, is about patients presenting with very real physical symptoms. I don't think they're made up, they're not factitious, they're not in the mind, they are physical symptoms. That's a really important point. I think so. And I think it's important that I try and get across to patients and parents that I believe that, and I do believe it. Mm recognizing, by the way, that a differential can be factitious disorder and factitious disorder by proxy, which we're going to perhaps talk about a bit later. (laughs) But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about someone who's consciously trying to get out of something or feigning something or making something up. We're talking about true, full-on physical symptoms. So the way I kind of understand these conditions, the somatizing conditions, is I see them as a form of an anxiety disorder. The problem is that they are not, well, the, the issue being that they are avoidance of anxiety. So Mm -hmm. there's an underlying stress or anxiety in a person's life. Classically, the patients who present with somatizing, classically, not always, but are patients who basically deny any kind of stress or anxiety. And they are, in my sense, a sort of personality type which tries to avoid feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. So any anxiety on stress as a background, as I see it, is converted into a physical symptom. And that's where can the idea of conversion disorder comes from. But I don't just mean it in the terms of how it is framed in the, in, in a conversion disorder. And by that, I, so I think there's three pathways. The first, from a biological point of view, I see through the, the, the pathway of physiological response to stress and anxiety, which includes not only the autonomic nervous system, but the whole <coughs> pituitary stress Diathesis, yes. So a whole range of physical and true physical symptoms, which are triggered by some underlying stress or anxiety, leading to true physiological symptoms. And the the the, the, the sort of uh, the, the analogy, I, well, not the analogy. The example I give is that anyone can can get physical gut symptoms from anxiety, whether it's diarrhoea or feeling sick or tummy pain. Absolutely. And the difference between someone who somatizes and someone who gets those physical symptoms is that a somatizer misattributes the physical symptoms of stress or anxiety to a gut problem rather than to the fact they're stressed because I don't get stressed. <laughs> so, so that therefore, they, they then get caught up, if you like, in their physical symptoms as being a uh, which are true physical symptoms remember Mm. but they rather than experience those physical which set off by the the autonomic nervous system or by the 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 stress pathways uh, other stress pathways within the body so there's a physiological response which is misattributed to a physical cause rather than the underlying psychological cause.
0: Sure and so if the patient were to get a diagnosis that were able to explain it outside of the Psychological etiology, then that would act as some sort of affirmation that this is some true, uh, tangible, you know, physical disease, something organic. When in reality, it's I mean, it's almost antithetical, and it works against them, even in a way to maybe prolong the symptoms.
1: Well, but th- th- that's right. But I think that th- this gets on to the other, you know, the other causes of the symptoms. In that, that's absolutely right. Except at the same point, the purpose of the symptom then becomes an avoidance of the underlying stress and difficulty, which is, if you like, continued by the ongoing focus on medical symptomatology, which mm. allows them to avoid the underlying problem. So they're actually, even though, you, as you're quite rightly saying, it's not doing them good taking that pathway and getting a medical diagnosis, from a psychological point of view, it seems to be doing them good because it's helping them not get anxious about mm. the underlying problem. They can get anxious about a medical problem instead.
0: hmm well, thank you. And that was, I think, if you wanted to add any more to the model as well.
1: Oh, I was saying that's the biological part. Yeah. From a psychological part, I see the psychological part being this dissociation, disconnection from the underlying anxiety or stress. So I see that as, if you like, being the the underlying Etiology, the psychological part two presentations of conversion disorder or functional neurological disorder, whichever term we want to use, and I use them interchangeably. Sure. Um, as a, if you like, a, a, I perceive that the symptoms of functional neurological disorder occur because of a disconnection or dissociation from some underlying stress or, or difficulty. And I see in somatizing presentations, there's always a degree of this disconnection. It's a sort of protection from feeling anxious. Another term for it is primary gain. You're, you're actually mm. having a, a psychological gain from not getting anxious by focusing on the physical side of yes. things. So that's the psychological background as I see it. Um, the, in terms of why somatizing by the way and yes. then the, then the social bits of it are complex but they relate to things like the stigma i'm talking about so how the whole issue of, of avoiding talking about the psychological background but i also think it it, it includes models of, a, of present presentation so that it's much more okay to present with physical symptoms than psychological whether the doctor you're seeing actually accepts and and and, and sort of if you like, encourages a medical cause yes. or encourages a non. Uh, I can together- imagine
0: a few particular doctors, maybe more old-fashioned, that could be interested in pushing that narrative too.
1: Indeed. Uh, together with... Um, and then the other two parts from a social point of view is I, I do think there's a, there's a sense of the social side of things exaggerating the symptom. Because, remembering, I, I don't think people make symptoms up, but they're often seen as being exaggerating, making more noise than they should. And my perception of that is that that comes about because they feel they're not being believed. No one's taking mm. them seriously. The other social bit is the whole idea of secondary gain, which I, I think is in, important to acknowledge. And that is that the symptom itself leads to a an avoidance of the thing that's caused the anxiety in the first place. And that's often school, for example. Mm. Um, but it also leads to, you know, it, it, you get much more social benefit from being physically unwell than you do from being psychologically unwell. So there's there's you know there's, there's a whole lot of, positive gain from being physically unwell which you don't get if you're, psycho- if you're psychologically unwell
0: yes um so clearly we can see from your explanation how using this model of thought is very useful for uh bringing in both the patient or their parents uh into that uh, treatment process i suppose or having the next part of the discussion are there any other ways in which this model is useful do you reckon
1: um Well, actually, can I I just take on one point you said there? Of course. My my experience is that uh, that, that the most important, it's such, this is such a, it's such a disabling, profound, difficult presentation and it's it's so caught up with a young person protecting them from themselves from feeling anxious and stressed and the cause of it that it's actually very hard to engage a young person in this model, Mm -hmm. however you present it. The way I'm presenting it, I think, is the best chance but the people in my experience that are most important to get on board are parents. So it's, you know, it's really important for parents to understand what's needed and to be guided in the treatment from the point of view of taking it on rather than getting caught up with a medical model.
0: Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love for you to explain this a bit more because it was related to one of the other questions I had. Can you tell us more about the role of the parent or the guardian, whoever it is in that rehabilitation model? Sure.
1: Yes. Look, I mean, remembering that, um, that that what we're talking about in in, in my opinion anyway, because it, it, it's it's still going, you're still going to get my opinion, though I don't I hope I'm not alone, <laughs> but it, that these conditions are of a form of anxiety disorder or avoiding anxiety. And you know, the whole problem with any anxiety disorder is is that you avoid that feeling of anxiety and it leads to functional impairment. So you know, they, they, we, social anxiety, school phobias, whatever we want. And that includes eating disorders, by the way, which we, Mm. I think there's a similarity there, which I could allude to in a minute if we need to. But the point of all of them is that the problem being that the anxiety is so pronounced and the avoidance of anxiety is so pronounced that the young person themselves struggles to actually fight that, that anxiety and is left increasingly impaired. So it's as with any disorder, what one needs is is supported exposure. So, exported, supportive exposure to the underlying source rather than avoidance. So, it, you, one needs to be able to acknowledge the difficulty and then supportively uh, encouraging exposure to whatever mm. is causing it. And the only way and the best people placed to do that are parents. Now, the problem with it being a parent is that you see your kid being distressed and physically distressed and with a medical problem, and you don't want to harm them by making their symptoms worse because you can see the distress and pain they're in. Right. (laughs) Therefore, you increasingly get caught up with the idea of supporting the avoidance of the underlying problem, because the more you push it, the more the symptom occurs. Mm -hmm. Are you
0: you making maybe the point here? And I'm just guessing that you need to do a little bit of bad in order to do a bit of good by exposing them to that uh, stressor.
1: That's, that's a really good point, Alex. And I guess, um, like it's it's it, it is uh, you know I, I jumped onto it I don't know if you want me to, but the whole no, issue of association with eating disorders because
0: let's talk about it. I think a big part of here is about patient insight really that's the common thread I see
1: it, well there is and that's that's right I mean for, for example, we the, the focus on treating anorexia nervosa, for example in in young people is is working with parents to take over the feeding. The the weight restoration and food and eating of a young person who doesn't have any insight into their underlying eating disorder and is Mm. extremely anxious and stressed out about the idea of eating food in order to to being worried about getting fat, which in a distorted way with lack of insight. And I, I agree with you with what you were saying, this lack of insight is so important in understanding things, because there's a similarity here with the lack of insight and the avoidance in a young person. And the, the idea being that once you, that that it's just as in, in, in an eating disorder with anorexia, one has to, and pay, it's such a hard job for parents mm. because you're actually fighting your parent, uh, your kid who's fighting back and distressed and is very distressed by what we're asking parents to do. And yet it's the, you know, it is the clear, it's, the, it's pretty clearly the best treatment we have available. And I don't want to get into I get into big arguments about all the pros and cons of it, but in terms of pushing through and and overcoming these underlying illnesses in a way which leads kids not to be functionally impaired and functioning properly, yes, pushing past, pushing back every kid whose symptoms will get worse in the Mm. short term because of the lack of insight and because what they're trying to do is to to avoid doing what parents are getting them to do.
0: Oh, absolutely. And while we're on this topic, actually, I'm wondering, because I'm aware that there's a fairly sinister level of relapse or reoccurrence of um, anorexia nervosa and in the sense that it continues to be a lifelong sort of presentation. Is this comparable in the somatization disorders or what what, what do we see in that?
1: Another really good question. And I I guess uh, it depends. I think it's such a spectrum. There's, as you know, I think most Somatizing presentations are uh, short-lived and, re- and, and and patients recover quite quickly. And I think a lot of by the way of somatizing presentations do actually present to GPs and are managed very well in the community without too much trust. Mm. The, 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 you know, the really difficult end of the spectrum, the spectrum I see. And that includes patients presenting to hospital and those who are pretty functionally impaired. I think that difficult end of the spectrum um, can lead to, that's where the input in this young age may alter presentations over a lifetime. Certainly I have had experience in a very pointy difficult end where there's clearly, a, and, and there's evidence that young people can present with lifelong mm. debilitating somatizing presentations um but at the same time i think in general terms these 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 presentations do well i'd speculate that it gets a lot harder as well when we're layering on different
0: complications like for example there being a true organic illness on the side um, and trying to disentangle the two
1: totally and then that's a good point as in um, and even though we haven't talked about it in here, you're absolutely right that somatizing or similar presentations can certainly present with an underlying medical diagnosis, uh, as well as, and, and it's not uncommon. And again, this gets back to this idea of, of, of experienced physicians being able to see the red flags, mm. see when it's not fitting in a normal medical pathway. But it's certainly, again, as you say, it complicates things not only for physicians, but of course for parents. Who are probably going to be driven by anxieties and worries about their kids.
0: Oh, absolutely. And understandably so as well.
1: Quite, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Before we run out of time, I'd really love to have a chat with you, Andrew, a bit about uh, factitious disorder induced in another. We also yeah. called this uh, Munchausen by proxy in the past. Yes. Uh, well, why are you so interested in this uh, topic? Where does that interest him from?
1: Um. Oh, lots of reasons, Alex, including I think some pretty significant full-on um, clinical cases that I've been involved with over the years, both as a paediatrician as a psychiatrist, because it, mm. it is a fascinating, a, a fascinating, uh, and 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 a very disturbing presentation when it is actually Munchausen disorder by proxy versus uh, and and uh, versus other presentations which may have a factitious component. Mm. Um, but, but in answer to your question, so not only from for my own interest uh, as a background in terms of cases I've come across, but also I think it's so important in, in, in this in the somatizing group because th- these patients present with medically unexplained symptoms and in general just as a comment when' we, we, there's been, we've done quite a bit of work here at the children's um, with the adolescent team recognizing that if parents accept a somatizing model or accept a non, Uh, medical model of these symptoms patients do well but when Mm -hmm. parents don't accept the model they do badly and understanding what might be driving the the whole idea that some parents may be driving medical presentations is is what we're talking about here but this spectrum of presentations of parents who who do this range from what is classically the munchausen by proxy and by munchausen by proxy we're primarily talking about personality disorder parents Mm -hmm. who are inducing illness in their child, primarily to, to develop, often when there's a background of something like borderline personality disorder or some personality issue which drives them to want to be seen as a carer of a sick child, which is, you know, obviously very disturbed and very, you know, abusive. Mm-hmm. It, it also, though, has increasingly been aware, we're becoming increasingly aware that it also includes hyper-anxious parents. So in other words, pathologically anxious parents who basically are worried that doctors are missing out on something, on, on a problem in their child, and they can't stop worrying, even to the point on occasions of fabricating illness in their child because they feel that the doctors are not taking them seriously. <laughs>
0: yeah, I have I have heard stories about uh, adding honey to urine samples and such. So.
1: And again, uh, it's sort of you, well, they, they do, all kinds of things can happen, and I won't, you know, I, mean, I could spend I could spend yeah. an hour telling you stories I've, you know, been involved <laughs> in such similar parent. Parental if we child. had the
0: time, I'd love to. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, maybe that's a topic for another discussion. It, it sounds
0: doesn't... like to me, Andrew. Correct me if I'm wrong. That instead of trying to view this as a presentation where we're trying to anticipate a particular symptom, instead we should refocus on these other signs. Say, for example, like you put it, the over anxious parent. Um, those broader sort of pictures of how the how is not just the patient themselves but who's bringing them in what does the collateral history say and what are their interactions like with you
1: yeah well again i think the you know that one of the things i'm trying to get across and we've developed a model of care or a model of consultation involving ethics and physicians and mental health and social work is to try and work out a model of care of working with these parents and i think the first issue is trying to work out when we think parents are actually driving things, mm-hmm. and then the next question is is why. So that you know, that's right. The first thing is the what, in terms of when we th- when it seems the parents are driving issues, and that's one of the things that we're trying to sort of develop a, a sort of pathway of understanding for physicians in the hospital and other healthcare workers to be able to, to pick it up early. Um, and then, but then the next thing is that then it gets a bit more complicated as trying to understand what the underlying pathology in the parents is.
0: yeah that's a that is a tricky one and uh you could have complete discussions about that as well are are there any other challenges that you see this presentation having compared to the others that we've discussed today
1: uh perhaps lasting
0: effects on the the proxy themselves
1: look um yes um but and by the way can i just Quickly, the the other group of parents is those that just don't accept a psychological problem in their child. So they're not actually mm. abusive, they're not factitious or pushing it, but they refuse to accept a psychological cause. So they keep on going down the medical pathway. The the yes the, the problem that yes there, there are, and that includes the the um and it's the same with any somatizing, but, but in this group we're talking about, there's an increasing there's going to be an increasing push for both from um, social isolation and avoiding function, but also taking on the sick role. And eventually what happens in this group is in my experience anyways that the kid themselves starts to produce a factitious disorder. So mm-hmm. they, they, they actually then become the changes from fan, factitious disorder by proxy or in induced in another is the current terminology, sure. uh, Through factitious disorder by the person themselves. Yeah. So
0: you got a whole transfer and yes. it's double whammy. Yeah. I um, I imagine that would be very
1: tricky to manage. Well, it's 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 uh yes. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the quick answer is yes, and the longer answer is that I've certainly you know followed up some of these people in the in adult care, and they're actually presenting with that they're, they're very sad because they have become full-on medical patients um, with, with, with extraordinary interventions and input, which is they've taken it on completely as their persona, but are completely caught up with a medical diagnosis.
0: But I'm wondering—you've alluded a lot to these underlying stresses in the background that uh, act as a cause. What, what often are those stresses? How do they manifest?
1: The, the commonest—and not not the only one—but the commonest one in my experience relates to school functioning. Um, and my, my own kind of experience in this group is that it it's, it, it it really relates a lot to academic functioning as is a common stress for this group and they uh, my 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 perception is that there's two there are two groups within that which i think are, are, are risk factors for presenting with somatizing one is missed learning disorders in other words as in adolescence particularly as the learning starts getting harder and school becomes harder there, there's, it, it's a stress for young people. Mm. And it's particularly a stress if you haven't sort of been recognized to, to have a, a, an issue. I think, you know, someone who's is, does have no issues is not a problem. And though someone who has very clear, recognized learning problems and struggles That's recognised. It's a group with missed learning difficulties, which sometimes school issues become harder, and also young people who have a perception that they actually find schoolwork easy, but then start finding it hard. And often these somatising presentations can be set off by a physical problem such as getting gastro or some kind of illness of some description which keeps you away from school for a little while and then you find it hard to get back into the rhythm of school and get the learning thing happening again and start getting stressed by it and that then exacerbates things and leads to this ongoing anxiety associated with doing well at school and and being okay. They classically say they have no problems at school but if you start delving in with speaking to school teachers and so on there's a recognition that there are issues in the background which might need exploring
0: yeah again showing the importance of a good collateral history
1: correct absolutely correct remembering that the group do not talk about their anxieties and stresses so it's a matter of sort of really trying to explore the things that aren't talked about but the classic kind of things apart from this school function include peer relationships romantic relationships how you are kind of going in these relationships and how you see yourself in terms of your attractiveness and your and how how likable you are Mm. together with obviously sometimes there are significant traumas at home and things that are home that are not being talked about and addressed now, as well as things like sexuality and gender and other issues like that, which if you like are under the surface and causing stress and anxiety, but a young person struggles to talk about.
0: Absolutely. And again, just all an excellent example of the importance of looking at it through the biopsychosocial framework. We have, for example, a, a organic gastro event precipitating it into maybe social uh, factors, maybe uh, if the person is from a migrant family, that could definitely add into the school sort of pressure picture. So it's it's an excellent example right there.
1: Absolutely. I agree with everything you're saying, Alex. All
0: right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. If only we had uh, more time together. I'm sure our listeners would love that too.
1: Uh, no problem, Alex. As, as you can see, I'm afraid to say I can keep on talking for hours on this. So you need to shut me up. No,
0: no, I'd love that. I'd love that. Well, thank you again and have a lovely day.
1: Thank you very much, Alex.
0: Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Freudian Slip and to our lovely guest, Dr. Andrew Court. Gratitude to Joseph McDade for the theme song. We'll see you next time.